A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello and welcome. I'm Tim Farron and this is the show where you get to hear from a Christian who works either in or through the mucky business of politics. You might think politics is tainted by compromise and sin, and of course you'd be right. But then again, so is everything else. And I think Christians should be praying for their brothers and sisters who are involved in politics and doing so in an informed way. Today, we'll be hearing from the Reverend Mark Mennell, an author, preacher, and a former chaplain to the Treasury and to the Cabinet Office. We'll be discussing the issue of trust in the mucky business of politics in the light of Mark's book, A Wilderness of Mirrors, which asks why there is such a culture of suspicion these days why we don't trust each other anymore. Before we get to that, I'd like to talk about Christmas. We got our tree this weekend, which means that according to the Farron family festive rules, it's now okay to pull out the Christmas DVDs. And we sat down the other night in our living room as a family to watch Home Alone for the first, but not the last time this month. And I confess to a feeling of cosy satisfaction, sat with my wife, kids and dogs, with a newly decorated tree in front of one of our favourite feel-good Christmas movies, Roll On Home Alone 2, although not Home Alone 3 or 4, because they are complete abominations. Anyhow, Christmas imagery of sparkly lights, roaring fires, vague homilies about goodwill and good wines, and now all over our timelines and airwaves. I guess it's a welcome, cheerful distraction from new COVID variants and various other downers that we face. Who can blame us? for stepping back and seeking a little comfort at Christmas. But when we look a little closer at the Christmas story, we realise that comfort was not what Jesus was born into, nor what he lived, nor, most alarmingly, what he taught. We think about cute and cosy nativities in school halls, but the reality was that Jesus was born into a poor family in a hostile world. The child grew up and claimed to be God, surely the only person in history to ever do that and be taken seriously. But as an itinerant teacher, he didn't have a place to call home. His teaching was not placid platitudes, but fiery challenges. He shunned comfort and willingly walked a path to a humiliating and painful death on a cross outside Jerusalem. And he calls us to the discomfort of repentance from our wrongdoing. And there's nothing more uncomfortable than realising our need for forgiveness. At Christmas, the best gift we are ever going to be offered is something we don't want to accept that we need. In Home Alone, Kevin finds himself sat with his elderly neighbour in an otherwise empty church, listening to the rehearsal for a carol service. The choir are singing Oh Holy Night, and they do a really, really good job of it. And that song has a peculiar message, though. Fall on your knees, oh, hear the angel voices, oh, night, when Christ was born. And then, behold your king, before him, lowly bend. Hearing those words, the hairs in the back of my neck stand on end, and not just because they're sung so beautifully, but why would they uplift me so? Why, when these words are a call to submission, to accept weakness, to openly declare my desperate need? Surely to be uplifted, we'd need words of encouragement, boosting my self-esteem, a defiant chorus of simply the best or something like that. But no, at Christmas, I am faced with the one I am made by and for come in human form for one reason and one reason only it's because he loves me because he is on an unstoppable mission to save me because those tiny hands in the crib are the safest hands in the world 
down on my knees is where I want to be. It's the only place to be. Uncomfortable, humiliating, out of step with the world, sure. But that was how it was during Jesus' ministry on earth. His teachings often caused great discomfort to his followers. In John 6, we're told that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asks the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. If, like Peter, we truly believe that the story of Christmas led to the story of Easter, then we know that we have nowhere else to go either. To follow Jesus is an act of glorious desperation. Christmas is for desperate people. Jesus is the only one who can offer you the only thing that you really need. Your experience of Christmas may not be the comfortable coziness I feel watching Home Alone with my family. Don't worry. If the Christmas story is true, then the God in heaven knows exactly how it feels to be without comfort. You are in good company. And if you trust him, you are in safe hands. Fall on your knees. A mucky business with Tim Farron. So to our guest, author, preacher and former chaplain to the Cabinet Office and the Treasury, the Reverend Mark Mendel, thanks ever so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Tim. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Let's begin um, at the beginning, at least in terms of your spiritual journey. How did you become a Christian, Mark? I was 18. It was the February before my A-levels and uh, the school I was at used to have these talks put on every Lent. And a guy came and uh, spoke on three consecutive evenings. And the thing that really struck me was that he talked about God and Jesus um, as if you could actually know him. And I'd be one of those people who perhaps in the past was happy to talk about God. But as soon as you mentioned Jesus, that gets a bit cringy and embarrassing and a bit too specific. Um, but the, I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it really struck me and I followed it up. And I guess within the following few weeks, um, I came to know Jesus for myself and realised that what he was saying was true. And your friends around you, how did they take your coming to faith? Um, I think I was fairly quiet about it. So I don't think necessarily um, I made a big song and dance, but I think several people thought I was a bit odd and um, sort of eccentric anyway. So I don't think they would have necessarily <laughs> been too surprised. Um, but, um, you know, over the years, some people have certainly been intrigued, if not um, thinking it's very peculiar. <laughs> Uh, peculiar enough for you to then pursue a vocation in ministry. Now, wh when, exactly. did that, when did that penny drop? When did you think that that was what you might want to do with your life? Um, well, there was no um, Damascus Road blinding light or anything like that. It was a very gradual, um, mundane thing, really. But it was while I was at university, I started getting involved in the Christian Union, helping to lead studies and doing the odd talk. And people were saying, oh, maybe you should consider doing this more or, you know, full time in the future. So I thought, OK, well, if it's the right thing, I'll push some doors. And if they open, then that that's clearly the right thing. And so that's what I did. And over the next few years, five or six years, um, things just slotted into place. So it was fairly straightforward. Um, and then um, I got ordained in the Church of England. So at some point in the in the future, scrolling forward a little bit, you're at All Souls Langham Place and you find yourself being invited to be 
the chaplain to the treasury, which Lee's been chaplain to the cabinet office. How on earth did such a thing come about? Well, I wasn't looking for it. I certainly wasn't thinking this is the next on my rung up, as it were. Um, but we had a number of civil servants uh, who came to All Souls, just naturally being a central London church. And I was invited to do, I think the first thing was a carol service that the, the Treasury Christian Forum had put on, and I was asked to speak at that. Um, and I did that two or three years running. They'd had a volunteer chaplain who was a retired clergyman who would sort of come in occasionally, but it wasn't really official, but one or two of the folks at All Souls said, well, why don't we try and make this a thing? And so they started talking to various people and HR, and um, uh, there was a, a, a minister in the government at the time who was very helpful. And, and so uh, eventually it, it did become sort of official. I was given security pass. Um, and uh, yeah, I did that for about 10 years. And so a lot of people will be listening to this programme and feeling quite encouraged and surprised to hear that there is such a thing as a Treasury Christian Forum. So mm. one thing that I guess springs to my mind is the question that uh, as to how um, religiously literate um, mm. the civil servants and, and, and politicians you came across were. Um, I can only speak anecdotally and in terms of individuals I got to know. I guess... Um, it, it, it's, it's a reflection of the wider population that, you know, in many ways, Britain is is post-Christian. So there are people who think they know what Christianity is, but actually when you start chatting to them, they really don't. It's just sort of inherited rumours, as it were. Mm. Um, but uh, the people I came across, and I certainly didn't just meet up with um, churchgoers. Uh, I got booked up by all kinds of different people. Um, there was a sort of intelligent curiosity very often. Sometimes they thought it was a bit odd, but um, I guess if they thought it was really odd or, or, or dangerous, they wouldn't have booked me up. Mm. Um, but uh, um, I think, you know, I, I was impressed by the calibre of people working in the Treasury and the Cabinet Office. I mean, there were some really very brilliant people. Um, but uh, in terms of religion, I guess a lot of them didn't have a lot of experience, but they, they, th those who met me wanted to know more. And so your, your presence on, on campus, so to speak, was, was made known via the internet mm -hmm. and people mm -hmm. knew that you were around in a specific place on certain days during the month. So people would right. seek you out often with, you know, were they questions about, life in general or people particularly curious about the faith what what brought people to your door it was a whole mixture um i i would guess the majority of those who are not churchgoers who sought me out were perhaps in a personal crisis moment um and so just that would be the natural pastoral um you know seeking out and mm. that might lead to other conversations um about faith um but uh, I, I guess it was, I, I was useful because I was in the building and, and therefore sort of was known to have a sense of how things were, but I wasn't part of the system. So I wasn't ever going to write a report on somebody or add a, a file to their HR file or whatever. So um, I was, I think I was um, easily trusted because of that. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're speaking with the Reverend Mark Mennell author, preacher, and a former chaplain of the Treasury and the Cabinet Office. Mark, we just talked about you being trusted by mm. civil servants and others working within uh, government as they confided in you. Um, 
I first came across you before we became friends uh, because I read your book, A Wilderness of Mirrors, which is, well, you tell us what it's all about. Um, it, was, it was a long project because um, I was trying to figure out why are we such a suspicious culture in the West, in Britain particularly, um, why don't people trust the things that maybe 50, 100 years ago they trusted? Because you notice that it's almost systematic. The institutions and types of profession and jo um, job um, that our grandparents would have instinctively said, yeah, we can trust those people, um, that's gone. And so I was trying to figure out what are the roots of this distrust, um, this cultural suspicion, and what on earth do we do about it? So. Um, basically, it's about suspicion. Yeah. And you talk about the 20th century being a period of time where um, you know, we started off trusting institutions. And mm. I guess we're talking about uh, obviously politics, the media, uh, church, police, other authorities mm -hmm. who we would instinctively trust at one point mm -hmm. and now not so much. What do you think happened during the 20th century that eroded that level? of trust mm. and, and built up that kind of culture of suspicion perhaps it's easy to to get your head around it by thinking in terms of what happens in a personal relationship that has seen broken trust and you know the old expression once bitten twice shy you are you are much more reluctant second time round to say uh, to trust somebody if there's a track record of that trust being broken now if you sort of um, put that onto the, the macro scale and, and explode that up to a society level. You've got that same dynamic. And to regain trust, you can't just have a five point plan or a, um, a sort of a scheme or a technique in, in the same way that you couldn't do that with a friend who's betrayed you. Um, trust can be broken in a millisecond and might take a decade to rebuild. Mm. And and you've got that going writ large in society. People are nervous because actually what's the suspicion derives, I think, from um, power that's been abused. And so therefore, you're always nervous of those who have power over you. There's a sort of sense of loss of control. And, and that makes people nervous. Mm. And I guess, I mean, there's evidence that abuse of power certainly happened long before the 20th century. Do you, of course. How much do you think this is about mass media, certainly post-war, that has just exposed what perhaps was always the case and people now are aware mm. of it? There's no question. I think, you know, we now know more about the world at any one point than even, you know, our parents' generation did. Um, and uh, I, I read somewhere, I can't remember the exact stat, but... Um, the, the Saturday edition of the New York Times, which has got hundreds of pages in it, contains more information than somebody living in 1500 in Europe would learn in a lifetime. So just mm. in one edition. Mm. So there's we just have available to us so much more. Um, but I think also because of this broken trust, um, the media um, are thinking they're not doing their job unless they are unmasking stuff. So the assumption is people are up to all kinds of dodgy stuff. Um, and if we take everything at face value, then we're going to be gullible and conned. So their job is always to peel back and find the conspiracy underneath. Um, and that just breeds more suspicion. Well, it reminds me of a Jeremy Paxman line. Um, if we'll excuse my French in advance, as I quote literally, uh, his assumption, he says, 
as he's interviewing any politician, why is this bastard lying to me? Um, exactly. And uh, and it may well be that this so-and-so isn't. Yes. Um, uh, so let's th- think about politics and politicians. Mm. And we call this podcast a mucky business. And there is assumptions out there that politics is. Uh, interestingly, I think it is often said that people's view of politicians is incredibly low. Um, mm. Although they'll tend to think that their local MP is all right. <laughs> um, right. Which is a default, I think. It tends to be the case, that it's still the case. I don't know. How much do you think politicians care whether they're trusted or not? Um, well, I guess it, that's going to range to individuals and how thick their skin is. But of course, um, there's there's a limit to how much um, they can sort of ignore it because, of course, you've got to be voted back. And um, if there becomes a groundswell of opinion that this person is untrustworthy, that's that's going to become overwhelming. It'll be a tidal wave, and that's how people lose their seats mm-hmm. uh, at one level. I mean, obviously, there's um, the, the dirty tricks and, and things to try and um, tar somebody else's name on the sheet, but mm. um, you you that basic trust is 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 needed. Now, it's interesting you mentioned the local politician because I think one of the key things here is um, people make a distinction between the generic you know, say politicians, and then somebody they know. Mm. Um, and if you actually know someone that is not mediated by all kinds of other things like the internet or TV news or whatever, then you're much more likely to be able to gauge whether or not you can trust this person. And the longer your interactions, the the, the more hopefully accurate your, your sense is. And I think um, one of the difficult things is how remote a lot of politics is and how politicians are. And the House of Commons seems a million miles away from most people's lives. But but when they get to know individuals, it's a different matter. Which just, I guess, begs the question, what's the solution to this? Because it mm. absolutely is a thing that we, we notice in the church, police, mm. at all levels of government, an erosion of trust, a, a culture mm. of suspicion. What's the answer? Well, as I said, there isn't a five-point plan because mm. this is about relationship. It's not about um, a process or a job, a task. Um, I think one of the things we need to do is to understand what brings trust. Um, and as a Christian, I would say, ultimately, it's about power and safe hands. Mm. Um and that means, as a Christian, that means only one thing or one person. That means Christ. And it's, a, it's, it's not often talked about, but I think it's a fascinating thing to, to look at and to consider, firstly, how much power Jesus has. Obviously, the power to create the universe. <laughs> but then look what he does with it. And it's not sort of self-aggrandizement. It's not sort of building mansions and duck ponds and things like that. It's, it's actually, well... It's a hand on a shoulder. It's somebody being healed. It's um, being somebody who's an outcast being told you belong. It's it's forgiveness. And in the end, the one with cosmic power is the one who um, intentionally goes to the cross. Mm. Now, that is so different from how human beings wield power. Um, it's the opposite. Isn't it? Most kings in history expect their people to die for them for king and country. Well, in the gospel, we have a king who died for his people. And I think that is the answer. So I, I mean, I utterly recommend uh, A Wilderness of Mirrors. Um, 
what it's worth. When I ceased to be leader, I bought a copy of it for all of my staff. <laughs> I hope they read it. Of course, in the end, and it works as wonderful sociology, but in the end, of course, it leads us to one place where we can mm. place our trust in confidence and which is in is in Christ, where power is held. They mm. are in very, very safe hands. I wonder just one final observation, because I think it, we as politicians have an enormous responsibility to behave with integrity and to try and maintain sure. trust. But I wonder if society as a whole... Um, has a greater responsibility to expect integrity. The mm-hmm. one thing that I observe, maybe it's a culture war thing, is that some politicians can get away with being, in inverted commas, untrustworthy, untrustworthy because they um, get the adulation of their mm. tribe because they're against the other tribe right. that people hate more. How mm. much have we got a responsibility as citizens, as voters, to mm. expect better from our politicians? I think that's a very fair point. And um, I think it's interesting, um, you know, without getting too party political, but it's interesting, isn't it, that um, when the last Tory leadership um, campaign, when I think it was Jeremy Hunt against Boris Johnson, and one of the questions, I remember one or two um, people voting in that were asked, you know, what they thought about Boris's trustworthiness. And I think the phrase that someone used is that, um, we've priced that in. In other words, we know that um, he doesn't necessarily say things he believes, but he's popular and um, we've priced that in and we think that that's a risk worth taking. Um, and that is not them necessarily just you know, acting unilaterally. It's because they know precisely the phenomenon you've talked about, that actually he's good with our, our tribe. Mm. Um and I think what we all need to do, and social media really doesn't help with this, but we need to find ways of being able to discuss things in the public square publicly without name calling and labeling and um, basically um, uh, writing people off with straw men and all the rest of it. It's, 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 it's very difficult, but it's all part of the mix. Mark, there's so much more we could talk about. Um, I'll plug your book one final time, A Wilderness of Mirrors by Reverend Mark Mennell. Fantastic piece of work and uh, recommend it to all of our listeners. Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend time with you again. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. Each week, we answer a question from you, the listener, about how Christianity and politics can work together. Maybe you're thinking through a particular issue or you're not sure why people disagree on a certain policy. If you've got a question, we'd love it if you wrote it to us in an email to farron at premier.org.uk. This week, Sade asks the following question. How is it fair for most MPs who are multimillionaires to make harmful financial decisions for the masses, not knowing or wanting to know how people are faring? Sade, thanks very much for the question. The first thing to say is I'm, I'm confident that the big majority of MPs are not millionaires of any kind, never mind the multimillionaire variety. Um, MPs are paid better than the average for sure, but most people are not anything like what most people would consider to be properly rich. Some are. The other point you're making, though, is about making decisions, financial decisions, that have an impact on the masses without wanting to know how people are faring. And the problem is, I think, and you hit a really important point here, uh, about empathy and about understanding the consequences of what we do members of parliament are voting most days that parliament sits 
on issues of, about new laws or about the spending of public money, how it's gathered, how it's distributed, that definitely has an impact on the majority of people out there and often uh, on those people who have the least. And I think what there isn't any excuse for is uh, voting in certain ways without understanding the impact that that will have. Empathy is an important thing for us to pray for our politicians to have. It's sometimes something that some will have more naturally than others. But empathy is a thing that you can achieve by effort, um, by spending time amongst the people, by listening to them, by understanding different experiences and entering in. And so I think that where politicians can be uh, held to account and can be guilty, whether they feel it or not, is for voting on things without thinking through the consequences. And all of us have done that from time to time. You follow what the whips tell you, uh, you follow the party line, and you perhaps don't think the consequences of your actions. We all need to do that. Um, whilst, you know, the massive majority are not multimillionaires, they're not stupidly rich. Nevertheless, all of us, 100% of us, have a serious responsibility to the people we represent and those around the whole of our country, not just to vote in a right way, but to think through how we vote. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, we're at the end of our time together for this show. Let's join in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, uh, it breaks our heart that we see um, people in positions of power uh, doing things which break trust with those who put them there. Uh, Lord, we pray that those who are in our government, the head of all of our political parties, on all sides of British politics, we ask that they would care about integrity. And though we know we will not find perfection this side of eternity, nevertheless, to your glory, we can seek to be trustworthy and honest and worthy of the trust that people might place in us. We also pray for every citizen in this country um, that they would care about integrity and they would, whilst being willing to forgive at all times, uh, hold people to account for lack of integrity and support those who, who show it. Lord, we also think about happenings at the far end of our continent uh, in Ukraine. Uh, we think about Russian leaders and Ukrainian leaders, and we see great threats to peace, uh, to life and to liberty there. We pray for peace, um, that you would bring it about, that you would settle the hearts of those uh, who will have the power to make war to instead choose peace. And in particular, we pray that you would strengthen the hearts and resolve and the faith of believers in your name in Ukraine and within the governments of Russia and Ukraine, that uh, your glory would be the thing that they pursue the most and peace would not be far behind. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, don't forget that you can find this show on all podcast providers. So please do subscribe, comment and like it so that even more people can find this podcast. Next week, we're going to be joined by former Labour frontbencher, Marsha de Cordova. Thanks ever so much for listening. Mm -hmm.